If you turn with me to the scripture, the passage on what today's teaching is based, is John chapter 19, verses 25 to 30. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And this is God's word. For the past few weeks, for the past month, we've been looking at a series of passages that help us, that teach us and help us to prepare for this period that we all call Lent, this Lenten period. And for the past four weeks, we've been looking at the people of Easter, the people surrounding Jesus at the time of his death and resurrection. And it leads all the way up to the culminative events leading to the hallmark of the Christian faith, the centerpiece of the Christian faith, and that's the cross and the resurrection. You know, why do we believe this? Why do we have to celebrate this like we do? People always wonder, why is the resurrection of Christ so important? If the resurrection was not a historical reality, then everything we believe is false. If the resurrection was not a historical truth, a historical reality, then everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus claimed about himself is absolutely untrue. We're still dead in our sins. Everything that he said about faith, everything that he said about life is absolutely false. But if the resurrection is true, if the resurrection is real, then everything that Jesus said about himself is true. And everything that Jesus assures and promises us about faith and about life is real and it's true. This passage is Jesus' famous final words on the cross. And it teaches us the meaning of his death and why he had to die and why he rose again. And, and really, that, that, why it should be celebrated. And it's very simple. There are three points today. Very simple. The three things that Jesus says. The first one, he said, the first thing he says is in light of the other two things. So I'm going to adjust the order a little bit. But really, the three points are the first thing he says, the second thing he says, and the third thing he says. The first thing he says, I am thirsty, teaches us why he went to the cross. The second thing he says, it is finished, teaches us what he actually did on the cross. And the third thing he says, dear woman, here is your son, and then to his disciple, here is your mother, teaches us how the gospel, how the cross actually changes us. Okay, so the first thing he said, first, he says, I am thirsty, teaches us why he went to the cross. You see this in verse 28, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. What's happening here? By now, on the cross, Jesus had experienced and endured everything that he was called to endure. He experienced being flogged, being whipped, being beaten. He was clubbed to his face. 
He was beaten with fists. He had taken the cross on a wrong road, on a journey, in blood, drenched in bruises, covered in bruises, all the way to Calvary, all the way up Calvary to the cross. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He endured the nails and the humiliation. He endured the insults and the blood loss. On the cross, he suffered asphyxiation. You suffocate when you're on the cross. If you know anything about what it means to die on the cross, you actually don't die from the shock and the loss of blood. You actually die from suffocation. And knowing that everything was now completed, just as it said in this verse, everything was now completed, but to fulfill scripture, he says, I am thirsty. Why? It's more than physical. Thirst is a metaphor, actually, for agonizing, fatal, spiritual death, a spiritual emptiness. All throughout the scriptures, you often see the references to thirst. Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 to 3. You see this in your call to worship. It says, what does it say? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after you. So my soul thirsts after you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? It says, my tears have been my food day and night while men say to me all day long, where is your God? The Bible says your soul needs something every bit as much as the body needs water. Your body, when it gets dehydrated, craves water, thirsts for water, desires and needs water. And the Bible teaches us that your soul, just like the body needs water, needs something. Thirst, to die of thirst, it's a terrible way to die. I don't know if, you're, um, if you talk to medical practitioners, they'll tell you that dehydration is one of the worst forms of death. Because as you go through these stages of dehydration, it reaches up to a climax. And what happens is the final stages of dehydration, the final stages of uh, loss of water in your body, when your body loses a certain percentage, an internal burning starts to rage inside you. There's an internal burning, a fiery, uh, an intense fire that starts to burn inside you until you die at last. Numbers chapter 21 you remember anything about Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are wandering through the desert and they're complaining about the food that God provided for them. And so they cry out against God and they cry out against Moses and they say, we detest this miserable food. That's what they're complaining about. So what does God do? He sends down these snakes. And in the NIV, it says something interesting. It says there's venomous snakes, poisonous snakes that God sends down and bites the people and they start to die. But if you read the King James Version or the English Standard Version, it's actually a little bit more true to the actual language. It says the Lord sends fiery snakes down. Why? It's not like he sent these snakes that were on fire, you know, these like, you know, like in, in some like crazy like sci-fi movie or something like that. What, it, what he's actually doing is he's sending these snakes down. And when they bite you, the venom produces such a thirst inside that it reaches all the way to the end, the final climax, the final stages of dehydration. And what happens is these people start to thirst to death. And this fire starts to burn in them. And they start to die. Agony, the emptiness, the uh, fatal, the fatality, the terminal aspect of this thirst. What God was doing there in that passage is he was demonstrating to the Israelites why we actually grumble. The reason why we complain, the reason why we grumble is what? There's a thirst. These expectations that have gone all the way to the climax. 
and it creates this internal burning. And what God was doing to them on the outside, they were thirsting and they were burning on the outside. He's showing us the condition of our hearts because we thirst on the inside. That's why we complain. Because there's internal desires that burn and rage inside us, and it's unquenchable. The Bible says, when, the God, is, when God is not the center of our souls, and we place our heart's desire on any other belief, or any, such as a relationship, you know, another faith system, beauty, for instance, or some sort of material possession, the Bible says we're thirsting. Scripture says we're thirsting to the point of corrosion of the soul. Your soul starts to corrode to a point where the thirst completely takes over until what happens? Agonizing, spiritual emptiness, spiritual death. You die at last. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. If you've been in the church for any number of years, you've probably heard this passage preached. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, what does he do? He drinks of wealth. He drinks of riches. He drinks of status. He drinks of his power, right? And meanwhile, Lazarus is on the outside of the estate, and he's a beggar. And all he has, he drinks of his sores. It says the dogs came and looked up his sores. And, and the rich man did nothing for Lazarus. One day, they both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man is in hell. Lazarus is the only person that Jesus actually gives a name to in any one of his parables. Lazarus has a name. Lazarus has a place. So he knows God. So he's in heaven. The rich man is in hell. How does the rich man respond? He says, I'm thirsty. He says, and he says, there's no repentance in his prayer. He calls out to Abraham, who's seated, who's seated in heaven, and he says, send Lazarus down to help me. Send Lazarus to assist me. Why? Because just as he lived his life, all his life, his life, his identity, everything was built on status and wealth and power, so he still thinks he's rich. He still thinks Lazarus is lower. And so he calls out to God and he says, send Lazarus down to assist me. There's no repentance. He's thirsted all the way to the end. The rich man is saying, I am thirsty, but he's still drinking from the well of money and his status and power. And as a result, there's an endless thirst. Do you get it? There's an endless thirst. The fire of hell is not so much external as so much as it's internal in our lives. There's an internal burning. You don't get thrown into hell. You choose hell. That's pretty scary. You don't just get thrown into hell. You actually choose it. God doesn't just annihilate us off the, off the earth. Hell is an actual place. But it begins here. If you think about it, it actually begins here. If you make empty choices, empty pursuits, based on an empty lifestyle and empty relationships, what happens? Eventually, there's a thirst. And the thirst continues to consume all of you until there's a corrosion, a corrosion of the soul all the way to the end. It's so consuming. What happens at the end? There's an endless thirst that we're brought into because we've rejected the only pursuit. We've rejected the only relationship. We've rejected the the only uh, lifestyle that gives us relief. The rich man says, give me relief. What does Abraham say in response in that parable? You've already gotten what you've asked for. You've already gotten what you wanted. People have a lot of trouble with hell. They think of hell as this cosmic oven 
this cosmic oven that God throws us into and then he shuts the oven and then he turns up the heat and he said, and then people say, no, no, I repent, I repent, help me, save me. And God says, too late, you had your chance. And then he turns up the dial and you hear the voice of Vincent Price in the, in the video thriller laughing in the background. <laughs> right? That's what you hear, right? But, uh, that's not what hell is. C.S. Lewis says every molecule in your soul cries out for God like the body does for water in a dry and barren place. That's hell. That's hell. When you're in a desert, you thirst. And the thirst is unquenchable. And your mind starts to play crazy tricks on you. Your mind starts to play crazy tricks. You start to see things that look like water, but it's not. An oasis. It's called a mirage. So you run to these mirages, and people have been known to have been discovered in the desert with sand in their stomachs. Why? Because they think they're drinking water and they're dying of thirst. Some of us are living like that right now. Some of us are living like that all the way until our spiritual, our soul corrodes towards an endless thirst. There's a, there's a movie in the uh, 19, uh, 1990s, I think the mid-90s, um, called Tombstone. It's actually one of my favorite movies. If you've seen the movie, and uh, towards the end of the movie, uh, Kurt Russell, you know, Wyatt Earp, it's a story of Wyatt Earp. He is with Doc Holliday, and he's about to face his arch enemy, and he knows he doesn't have a chance. And he goes to Doc Holliday, and he says, what drives a man like Ringo, his, his, his enemy? And Doc Holliday responds, a man like Ringo has got a great big hole right in the middle of him. He can never kill enough or steal enough or inflict enough pain to ever fulfill it. That's a, that's a movie. But you have Madonna, recently came out with a new album. Madonna, in 1991, sitting with Lynn Hirschberg for Vanity Fair magazine. And uh, here's what she says about her life. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear, to discover myself as a special human being, And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. What Madonna is saying is the same thing as what Doc Holliday is explaining to Wyatt Earp is what Jesus is explaining here on the cross. This internal thirst that burns inside and consumes us all. How do you know you're thirsting? You have to look at the patterns of your day. You have to look at the clues based on the patterns of your, your day, your consistency, the consistency of your day. Here's a list. Okay? I'm just going to read out a few, a few items How do you choose your friends? What qualifies somebody to become your friend? What makes life unbearable to you? You know, a lot of us say, if only I have certain things, certain materials, certain comforts, a certain number, sign, you know, a, a certain value in the bank, then I feel okay, then I feel comfortable. What does your day's thoughts center around? Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your job? Is it your money? Where do you invest your time and why? Do you need something in your body? 
Do you need some substance in your body just to feel normal every day? What do you compare most when you look at somebody else? What are the things that you compare yourself most with that person? Is it your salary figure? Size of your house? Your grades? Your job offers? When Jesus says, I'm thirsty, what is he saying? He's taking everything that's happened. Remember, he's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been clubbed. The journey all the way to Calvary. The crown of thorns, the nails in his hands, the nail in his foot, the humiliation, the insults. His skin has literally been torn apart and he's, and he's being laughed at and mocked. And when he said, but he, said, he, never, he never says a word throughout this time. He never once says, I am beaten. Not once does he say, I am sad. People are making fun of me. I am sad. Not once does he say, I am in deep pain right now. I am in shock. He never once turns over and says, I am losing blood to the point of death. Not once does he respond. But here he says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. And when he says that, he says, it's the text here, it says, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. One of the most prophetic psalms about Jesus in the Old Testament. And it starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the end, it ends with, it is finished. But in the middle, he's looking around at the people mocking him, the psalmist. He says, dogs are circling, and people are hurling insults at me. He says, my throat is dried up. In other words, I am thirsty. Jesus is on the cross, reciting the words to this psalm. And what he's saying is this. Right now, the whipping, being beaten, the clubbing, I can take all that. I can take the whips. I can take the fists. I can take the clubs. I can take the journey, the walk to, the, to Calvary, up Calvary. I can take the nails. I can take the insults. I didn't come for that. I am thirsty. I came to thirst for you. Every molecule in my soul is right now crying out for God, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My soul is this barren desert, is a spiritual desert. My God is nowhere to be known, nowhere to be seen. In other words, I'm in hell right now. I'm in utter emptiness, cosmic emptiness, cosmic unrest, the cosmic fire of hell, the burning inside because God has left me. And that is the one thing I desire, the one thing I cannot have, the one thing I cannot hold. There's an internal burning inside me and it's consuming me. Until you understand why Jesus came to the cross, until you understand why Jesus walked up Calvary to the cross, you will not understand what he actually did. Jesus is the deer panning for right now for a stream of living water and it's been denied him. It's been utterly denied. And he's crying out. His tears have been his food while men are saying to him, where is your God? If hell is the complete absence, the utter emptiness spiritually because God is not present, Jesus is saying, you know, I've been pierced. But that's not what's killing me. I'm suffering the eternal hell at that moment. Cosmic emptiness, cosmic thirst for you, for me. Jesus suffered the wrath and the punishment that we deserve so that we could have what? The acceptance, the love, the living water that God offers freely. 
In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38, a long procession. It's a, it's a, it's a historic procession that takes place annually during a tremendous feast in, uh, in a Hebrew culture. The priest dips, takes this pitcher and dips it into this pool on the last and greatest day of this feast and they walk up this procession together. And what they do is they pour it out. They pour it out. It's actually symbolic and representative of something that actually happens in the Old Testament when Moses strikes the rock and water pours out of the rock. They're reenacting that right there in that moment. And there, as the priest is performing and conducting that uh, that procedure or that process, Jesus is standing before the people. And what does he say? If anybody will come to me, if anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me. Streams of living water will flow from him. Plunge into the grace of God. Soak in the mercy of God. Swim in the fountain of God's mercy and God's love. And you will find refreshment and you will find relief and you will find peace for your soul. Your soul, your thirsting will be quenched. Now that's the longest part. You have to know why in order to know the what. The second part is, what did he do? And you see this in the second thing he said in verse 30. In verse 30, Jesus says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. What did Jesus do? It is finished. It's one word in Greek, tetelestai. One word. The word exists only twice in the entire New Testament, and it's actually both times listed and written in this passage. Picture Jesus. He's hung on the cross, seemingly defeated. People are shouting at him, mocking him, insulting him. Seemingly helpless. People are insulting him. And he utters one word. He says, it is finished. To tell us die. I've done it. It's over. It's accomplished. It's complete. What's complete? What's over? Jesus finished building the bridge. He reconciled man with God. He crossed the infinite distance between man and God and completed that bridge to perfection. And when he nailed, when that nail went into his arm, into his hand, and he's losing the blood, and he's seeing that everything that had to happen had finally happened, he says, I've done it. In Hebrews, it said it was his joy to do it. Can you imagine? People are shouting at him. People are laughing at him. People are mocking him and insulting him. And Jesus, strung up like a criminal, for all the world to see as a disgrace. It's practically in his heart, there is still joy. And he's saying, I've done it. Father, I've done it. It's over. It's amazing. Jesus is saying, I finished it. I've crossed the infinite bridge between man and God. Do you believe that? Either it's going to be amazing for you and you're going to rejoice and you're going to sing amazing grace or it's going to be so amazing that it's ridiculous for you. That's why you have to believe in the historical reality of the resurrection. You have to believe in the historical reality that John was not writing fiction, that he was not writing legend, but he was writing truth. He was writing history. He was writing news. And it was good. You don't live the Christian life Most pastors probably hate the fact that I'm about to say what I'm going to say. You never live the Christian life because it fulfills you. Because it's not always going to fulfill you. Trust me, I'm a pastor. It's not always fulfilling. It's hard and it's rough and it's torturous sometimes. And it's incredibly straining. 
And sometimes there's a lot of labor and you a lot of sweat and a lot of tears and you're convicted and you feel guilty at times and you come back and you run back to Jesus and you feel helpless and utterly weak. It's not always fulfilling. You never come to the cross because it fulfills you, because it won't always fulfill you. That's a promise. You come to the cross because it's true. You believe because it's real. You come to the resurrection. You look at the resurrection. You see the empty tomb. And you come to the cross. And, you, and you're able to come in your guilt. And you, you, and you realize that Jesus has cleansed your guilt. And you come because you feel ashamed. And you realize Jesus took away your shame. Because it's true. Because it's real. Because the resurrection is visceral in your life. Why? Because you believe it. Not just because you believe it. Not because you believe with all your might. It's because it's real. It's because it's history. It's because it's news. That's why you believe. Now, here's some examples of things we do to avoid believing. And we do this every day. That's why I have to point it out. So we can walk away free. Free in Christ. One, we always, number one, we're always still trying to earn God's favor. How do we do that? By proving our worth to other people, to one another. We boast. We get frustrated when people criticize us. We get frustrated and defensive when people point out our sins. Why? Because you're still trying to finish it on the cross. I mean, you don't look at what Jesus did on the cross. You're still trying to finish it. You're trying to act as your own advocate. You know what an advocate is? You know, when you sit in court, you have an advocate, a lawyer who speaks on your behalf. If he's a good lawyer, you're going to win. If he's a bad lawyer, you're going to lose. And what you're doing, when you, every time you get defensive, every time you get frustrated because people are criticizing, every time you feel the urge to have to prove yourself, what are you doing? You're trying to act as your advocate. You're replacing Jesus instead of letting Jesus replace you. Here's Jesus as the ultimate advocate, testifying on your behalf. And what is he saying? He is innocent. The debt has been paid. The crime has already been punished. Set him free. If he is the perfect advocate, if Jesus is victorious, then you're victorious. If Jesus dies, you die. If Jesus rises again, you've risen again in him. Stop trying to finish it on your own. The second we do, thing we do is we misunderstand what it means when Jesus says it is finished by saying, oh, it's a second chance. God has given me the second chance to live life. But if you think about it, a second chance is really just what? Another opportunity for you to prove yourself. That is not what Jesus does. That is not what God has given you. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to become sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' record has been replaced with our faulty, poor record. Our record has been placed on the cross, nailed to the wood and gone. Jesus' record everlasting, eternal, placed on us for our sakes. And it means that it's no second chance. We're already declared righteous. You can't prove it. You can't prove yourself perfect. But Jesus is perfect. Look to his character and look to his grace and look to his work. Stop trying to work to earn God's favor again. The third thing we do is we beat ourselves up. You can't believe that God is that gracious because if, you, if he only saw your sin, now we don't actually say that with our words, but we act that way because we feel shame and we feel guilt and we feel like, oh, I can't come to church. I can't go to community group. Why? It could be something as trivial as I overslept a little bit and I'm running late and we feel so guilty. 
It could be something very, very deep, some deep, grievous things that we've done, and we've all done both. And what we do is we beat ourselves up. I used to counsel this one young lady who used to tell me that every single time she doesn't feel spiritually well, what she does is she locks herself in her room, and she doesn't answer phone calls, and she just sulks in her room until she feels like she's paid the price. Stop beating yourselves up. Jesus was beaten once and for all. And Jesus said, it is finished. Remember that. It wasn't just physical. It was cosmic. Next, we beat other people up. Why? Because if God, that has a lot to do with ourselves. If God, we still fail to recognize that Christ has paid for our sins. So it's hard for us to believe that Jesus has paid for other people's sins, especially the things that we see in other people. What do we have to do? We're still trying to finish it. We're still trying to say that we're more worthy. You're still trying to pay the price on your own. Jesus has said, it is finished. It is finished. Remember Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler. He's a man who's grown rich, wealthy, a a man of character. And he goes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, ultimately, he starts to lay out the commandments. Moses' law, God's law. And the man doesn't say, okay, thank you. Uh, I, I need to rethink this and, and rethink my life. What he does is he says, actually, I've done all those things. That's what he says. Now, when we read that passage, we look at that man. We say, how arrogant. This man is so full of pride. How disgusting is this guy? But that's not what it says what Jesus did. It says in Mark chapter 10, Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. He had compassion. He had compassion for him. Lastly, we're unsatisfied oftentimes with our place in life. We start to look elsewhere. We start to consider other people's lives and how much better it is than our own. And we get deeply dissatisfied with where we are. And so we start to look at other areas for relief. We don't feel complete. We start to live out Doc Holiday. There's a hole that starts to form in our hearts and we start to fill it. We try to fill it with all these other things. Madonna, right? Always pushing, always pushing, she says. And she says, someday, you know, I think I'll always be doing this. I think I'll never stop doing doing that, pushing and pushing to prove that I'm somebody. Still trying to finish it. Jesus purchased us completely. You know, when Jesus said it is finished for you, for me, what he's saying is this. It's like him buying this house because he says that he ransomed himself for our souls for our lives you know what that means what he means is i'm going to purchase this person once and for all i'm not going to put a down payment i'm not going to put a mortgage down for this person i'm purchasing this person all of him all of her and what i'm doing is i'm not going to just wait till it gets all fixed up before i move in i'm going to move in right now I'm going to move in right now, and one by one, one room at a time, I'm going to sweep the floors. I'm going to start putting all the pieces of this person's life back together. That's what Jesus did when he ransomed himself for you. He purchased you once and for all, all of you, as you are right now. Now, how does this change us? Dear woman, here is your son. He turns to the disciple and says, here is your mother. 
In those days, there was no nursing homes. There were no social security packages. There was no welfare. You know, there was no pension plan for, for old women to be able to take care of themselves when they get past a certain age. In fact, their lives depended on the lives of their son, the welfare of their son. Well, here's Jesus. He's on the cross. The future his mother is looking very, very bleak. So what does he do? The gospel changes everything. He turns to the disciple whom he loved, and he says, here is your mother. He turns to his mother and says, now here is your son. He wasn't doing a play on words. The gospel is changing everything. What he's saying is this, as a result of everything that I've done, all relationships are now going to change. I'm going to turn our concept of love and relationships and giving upside down. The cross so deeply transforms us. If you really know why Jesus went to the cross, if you actually know what he actually did on the cross, then all of our relationships get transformed. The cross so deeply transforms us into a new community, a radical community that changes us from the inside out. Now how? Most of us, when we look out for relationships, when we look to build relationships, we look for people who are just like us. We look for people who are similar to us, similar in values, similar in stage in life, stuff like that. But the cross so deeply transforms us. Take a community that doesn't hold money, that doesn't hold power or status or pedigree or even your lifestyle or or salary as central in their lives. Take a community where each person has now said those things are now secondary. And the only thing that we're going to value as central is the fact that Jesus has died for each and every one of us. That's going to radically change us. Because all of a sudden, we've all been put on the same plane. No matter how much money you have, no matter how little money you have, no matter where you studied, what you've done, what you've accomplished, how you failed, whether you're single or married, Dating or broken in relationship. The gospel has changed everything. How we view each other. In the gospel, everyone is your mother. In the gospel, everyone is your son. In the gospel, mothers and sons, very intimate relationship. In the gospel, we have the possibility for genuine community because God has taken, you got to think about what he's done. He has crossed the infinite plane the plane that has been created by sin, he has crossed over that and built a bridge completely and perfectly so we may cross over, and then he ushers us through. God, this perfect entity, God himself is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit has said, we're going to open it up to you. So you can cross the infinite plane now and be reconciled to us. Reconciled to the Father. Reconciled to the Son. Reconciled in the Spirit. You're having a difficulty forgiving somebody? You have to look at the cross. What do you see when you look at the cross? The son has become an enemy so that the enemies can become sons. That changes your view on reconciliation. It changes your view on forgiveness towards one another. As Christians, we can love and give radically to one another. And all these resources, we have every resource that Jesus had. When Jesus was on the cross, he had no resources. God had departed from him. He was stripped completely naked. And he was literally, by the second, emptying himself, even of his blood. But he had the word of God. And he was worshiping. Do you know that, really, as Jesus was dying, he was literally worshiping on the cross still in his suffering. We said, why can't I do that? You can. Because we have a spirit that resides in us. And this spirit has risen Jesus from the dead. That power actually resides in us when we become Christians. So that it's not just about applying the word or reading the word. It's about in the spirit, 
God speaks to us through the word, convicts us, challenges us, and empowers us, enlivens us, brings us back to new life to live for him. That's what it means to live out the gospel. And it starts out towards one another. We start to move towards one another. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what happened? They covered themselves with fig leaves. They became alienated from each other for the first time in history. But the gospel, what does it do? Because of the death of one man, or the Son of God in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled in him. Not just to the Father, not just in ourselves, because the quenching is over. We're actually reconciled to one another. We become genuine community. Radical forgiveness. Radical love. Radical giving to one another. Plunge your nobility. Plunge your failure. All of our failures, failures in school, failures to live the life, failures to live a good life, failures to obey your parents, failures to to be the person that you thought you'd be when you were younger. Plunge all of your failures. Plunge all of your successes, all the things that are your accomplishments, all the things that are your good marks, your bravery, your suffering into the word of God, into the truth of God, into his grace, and let his words refresh you and bring you calmness that comes in the spirit of peace. Let's be, rhyme, let's be reminded of the gospel again today. We're going to sing probably the most well-known hymn to man today. Non-believers know it because they even use it in movies. We're going to sing together in response to the gospel of grace, to our Savior Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from our thirsting, unto a life that's everlasting. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your presence. And Lord, we are grateful for the promise of the gospel in Christ. And Father, we are grateful that your son had taken everything that we deserve so that we could have everything that he deserved. Father, let us apply these truths, these words into our lives and be reminded of them daily in our living in our relationships with one another, that we could radically be transformed and know it and be assured into a life that is just joyful in your Son and in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.